Hello and welcome to The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in modern. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from elsewhere in Chicago, it's the godfather, Dave Harbarger. What are we going to do without Shane? (laughs) We're just going to keep on trucking. Yeah. Also with us elsewhere in Chicago, a little further north, I suppose, it's the warden. Zach, call Han. I did really great in the constructed portion of my week, but the limited one just blew it out of the water. Our buddy Shane is out this week, but should be back on the next episode. Happy to have the two of you here with me today. Absolutely. To talk about a big, big week. On this week's show, we talk all things MC London. We go over the decks that impressed us, the results that surprised us, and what this tournament could mean for the future of modern. Then we wind down with some listener questions. But first, some housekeeping. Shout out to friends of the show Sparkling Pete and Chris from SA for leaving some very friendly reviews on iTunes. We appreciate it very much. If you like what you hear, we hope you consider leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Also, thanks again to everyone who was patient with our technical difficulties last Friday. We're sorry for any possible confusion when you tried to download the new episode, only to hear episode 18 again. Sometimes making a podcast is hard, but everyone was super understanding, so thanks. But with that out of the way, this week we're combining the breakdown and the dive down. We have hybrid segment this week. Breakdown times dive down. Double duty. You can use breakdown or dive down mana to tap for this week's segment. Exactly. Mythic Championship London. Yeah, so exactly. As we all know, going into this, there was a lot of, not behind the scenes, but a lot of moving pieces leading up to this tournament. Uh, Wizards of the Coast decided to try out two new things going into this tournament, which is the London Mulligan, which we have spent the past, what, three episodes talking about? Sounds about right. The con- yeah, and the concept of open deck list, where you get to see your opponent 60 before the tournament and during as well, and their sideboard, but not the number of cards in the sideboard, just the cards in the sideboard. So I don't think you got to see them before the tournament. Oh, okay. Is it only at? It was, it was, I think you it get was to like see, after round one or something. It was after round three. You didn't get to see people's <laughs> limited deck lists. You only got to see their modern deck lists. Okay. And, and I think it was when you sat down, you got like a couple of minutes to read your opponent's deck list. But I think what happened as a result of this is that people just posted their deck lists up. Yeah. Also, I, I will say that I didn't pick up on this notion that submitting deck lists to your opponent or to the tournament and having them public was something that they're testing for long-term play. Like, I would be really surprised if this is something that extends to the LGS level as opposed to something like London Mulligan. That seems like more of a people's rule. Yeah, it's definitely not going to be extended to the to the store level because there's just so much overhead attached to having people. I mean, you could never have like a small LGS tournament where everybody provides deck lists and... No, it would add an hour easily. Exactly. I think the point of this was what they were trying to do was to have a a better um, user experience, uh, a better viewer experience by using that cardboard live um, Twitch integration that we talked about a couple of a couple of weeks ago, and that led to this idea that well, if the deck lists are going to be on cardboard live, we really need 
to make the deck to make opponents deck list available to everybody at the MC so that there isn't some kind of weird scouting going on where somebody is like peeking at their phone to watch the Twitch coverage to see their opponent's deck list or something like that. Or some, you know, they have an ear, someone has an earpiece in getting like, you know, signals from the booth or something like that. To right. Know, like what's going on. So yeah. I think it was just a necessity of, of a, a better coverage experience. Um, the thing that was super surprising to me, and we can talk about this more later, is that you know the London Mulligan and Open Decklist both had pretty profound effects on the way that this tournament played out, some of which are going to matter in the long term and some of which are really hard for us to understand as LGS-level players because of the fact that they're not going to do Open Decklist in LGSs. Yeah, talking about all that makes me really think about how people went in going talking about this weekend where it was the great experiment of the London Mulligan. But as far as experiments go, this is a terrible one, right? Like you have so many variables, there's no control, and it's really hard to tell what affected what. So I wonder if the data they gathered from Magic Online was what they were looking for, and here was just more of a, a splashy way to debut it. Yeah, I, I think they always want to start this stuff at the highest level tournaments so that the pros you know the pros are the people who are going to be the the fastest to break a new rule sure and so i think what they wanted to see was let's stress test it with the best players in the world to see what they do to to this if they break it if they if it's the same and you know i think that we we kind of all have some thoughts on what that what that meant so before we hop in do we want to go over the predictions that we had a couple weeks ago about how we thought the top four was gonna was gonna shake shake up yeah i think that would be fun because we did not bad. It's almost as if we've been paying very close attention to the format and we're able to make educated guesses. Now, I think there's a ton of caveats <laughs> with each of these predictions. Yeah. <laughs> and I think we're going to have to post-rationalize how each of them was a success as we, as we discuss the tournament in general. But we're just going to give a, ref a refresher here on what everybody picked for being part of the dive-down top four of Mythic, Mythic Championship London. So I chose humans as my, my represent, representative of the top four. Yes, I wanted to choose humans, but in the spirit of being different from my co-host, I reluctantly picked Tron because it seemed like a safe, if not obvious, bet. I decided to go with War Prison, which is a deck that I thought was both well-positioned and benefited pretty intensely from the London Mulligan. And Shane, if I'm not mistaken, chose the spookiest boys of them all in spirits. Yeah, Shane, Shane chose ghosts, and he is a ghost. He is not here to defend <laughs> the fact that his ghost did not show up. Um, the wind cries out, actually. <laughs> we've prepared a plate of bacon to go with the egg on his face. Oh, <laughs> we're dunking on him, and he's not here. <laughs> a nice, what a nice bonus. Yeah. I think we dunked on Dave once when he wasn't here, so it's only fair. Yeah, it's true. Um, I think that what's interesting about the predictions that we had is that we were all right in different ways. And I think we're going we're gonna to double back to this as we go through the, the discussion to kind of point out all the ways in which the dive down totally nailed predicting this tournament. <laughs> Let's talk about the day one meta breakdown because we've got all 515 decks that players played in the main event. Yeah, so Stan, your pick was Tron, and we see that Tron's actually the most popular deck of day one, with 15% of the open meta being Tron. Ding, the first way that we one of our predictions was right. Tron led the field. So coming behind that, we have Is It Phoenix with 12%, Humans at 10%, uh, and then it, it starts to get a little more disparate from there. Uh, Blue Eye Control at 7, Dredge at 6, versus Death Shadow at 6, Hardened Scales at 5, Amulet Titan at four, 
and then a few other ones at three and two. So what do you guys think about this? This feels like the first tournament of 2019 where Is It Phoenix was not the most played deck. Though I guess we don't always have the day one numbers, but it had that feeling, right? All year, when, even when we don't have day one numbers, it just always felt like turn that it always felt like Is It Phoenix was the most represented deck, period. Yeah. For me, this feels like the metagame breakdown of that Mox playoff from the first weekend of the London Mulligan on, on Magic Online where Tron is leading the pack and then the rest of the field has kind of rearranged itself behind that. And I think that the order was almost the same, but it's it's interesting to see all those people in high level competition on Magic Online go Tron is going to be great. All those leagues that we played where we ran into Tron over and over again with everybody everybody going Tron is great with the London Mulligan and then it even made its way all the way to the uh the Mythic Championship as well. Well, I think there's more to it than just the rule change. Given Tron potentially improves from the rule change, I think also there's this agreement that it's good against Is It Phoenix. So if you're going to this tournament knowing what the most popular deck of the year has been, and you can potentially sidestep that deck with a strategy that's both effective but also maximizes on this rule change, it seems like it was really well positioned for this tournament ahead of time. Agree. I mean, I think it's hard for us to figure out which one of these factors was a bigger uh, source of this number. I I think that you I think that you're right too, Stan. I kind of think that mo- more of it was attributed to the the London Mulligan hype, but I think we have some interesting things to look at when we when we kind of break down how Tron performed over the weekend later on to to see uh, how the results kind of stacked up. What do you think about the rest of this meta? It's not that different than what you would see at a, a fairly competitive LGS, in my opinion. There's more spice abound, but. For the larger field, there's nothing that was too represented that was off the wall or something you wouldn't expect. Is it Phoenix, Humans, Control, Dredge? These are all decks we've talked about. Yeah. So what were the kind of big surprises then out of out of the first uh, the first day of this tournament? I think that the biggest one for me was maybe not archetypes that were selected, but deck construction definitely had some wild things going on across multiple archetypes, right? You're referring to Surgical Extraction here, correct? I mean, I am referring to that. As that's kind of the headline of this section, right? Do you want to talk about the note there? What, in that uh, Surgical Extraction was the most played card on day one, with 569 copies showing up between the 515 decks? There was more Surgical Extractions than there were players. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, so insane. Yeah, the breakdown is there were almost 200 main. There were 199 copies in main with 370 in sideboard. So 48% of the decks of the tournament had a single copy, at least one copy in their 75 unbelievable and then people were doing other interesting things with main decking graveyard hate all over the place right blue white control there were several versions of blue white control that were main decking rest in peace uh, a number of the rock decks of course are running nihil Spellbomb main right. so there's just a lot of people saying we are going to try to take down the graveyard um in these turn in this tournament you know when graveyard hate is pretty bad when you're dealing with a bunch of humans and tron players well, a little preview of of the way that this this weekend went, but yeah. One of the other statistics we have from this tournament is how decks did on on day one in only the modern rounds. Right. So to illustrate the point again, because this was not clear to me even until it happened on the screen. For this tournament, there was a modern portion, there was a limited portion, and then modern the date for the second day. Yeah. Well, it's both actually for the second day. So in, in Oof, okay. Pro, Tours, well. <laughs> Pro Tours and Mythic Champions ch- Championships, 
whichever, whatever we're calling them now. At the t- this top tournament is always a mixed format where they do three rounds of draft, five rounds of construction constructed, three rounds of draft the next day, then five rounds of constructed again the next day. So it's 16 rounds total. And then there's a top eight after that. And the top eight is always just constructed. Mm-hmm. So you don't just have to be good at a single format. You basically have to be good at magic. Yeah. I mean, how different are the two formats of a limited and modern, right? One where you're pouring your heart and soul into a very expensive deck and one where you're opening packs and making a deck from it. It just, it's like the opposite, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the thing, it's one of those things that it causes a big hiccup with people whenever they're analyzing the results of this type of tournament, these mixed format tournaments, because they look at the top eight and they immediately go, oh, these eight decks made the top eight. I should build one of these decks. And oftentimes at least a few of those decks and the pilots who are behind those decks got there because of strong performances in limited and mediocre performances in constructed or at least not dominant construct uh, constructed performances. So what were the top five decks in, in the modern rounds uh, from day one? So the top five performing decks on day one in only modern rounds was in first place ad nauseum, which won 23 matches and lost 13. In second place was Hardened Scales, which won 66, lost 44, and had a, one player had a draw. In third place was Jund, which won 12 and lost 10 matches. Fourth place were Prison, won 34, lost 29. They also had a draw. And then in fifth place was Eldrazi Stompy. It won 31 matches, lost 27, and they too had a draw. I'm surprised there weren't more draws with these decks, especially War Prison. Maybe it's because of the environment people are more willing to concede and try to play it out than they would be elsewhere. But only one draw is very surprising for a list like that, or a deck like that, rather. It is super interesting to look at this list of decks, though, that were kind of performing really well in day one, and none of them made the top eight. Yeah. I think this definitely is leaving a little bit of results out of some of the other decks off of this list, but maybe maybe it's good to note, you know, if you look at the overall table that was shared of modern match win rates, you know, the three highest performing decks in the whole tournament were Ad Nauseum at 61.7%, which is crazy. Bonkers, you know, eight, yeah, absolutely. Eight people piloted it. That is wild. Hardened Scales had 56% match win rate. And humans had a 54.3 match uh, percent match win rate. Yeah, I, I, I'm when that graphic got shared, the 61.7 percent win rate for ad nauseum. It's I'm still like shook about it. Like it's still affecting me. And like we when we saw it on camera, it didn't do terrific. But I wonder if some dark clouds are on the horizon. I feel like ad nauseum is a deck that is okay and is, hasn't been an issue because it can lose to itself so often. And like we saw on camera, the guy had three Simeon Spirit Guide in his hand. Okay, well, uh-oh, you lose to Dredge that way. But mm-hmm. if you can cut down the number of times that happens, and as we saw, they clearly did, I don't know. I, I'm I am preemptively getting worried. What what are you getting worried about? Is it just you're getting worried about the strength of combo in a in with the London Mulligan or yeah? It, so specifically ad nauseum, it's a deck that I've always felt like was good but fragile, and clearly the London Mulligan can help with fragility. But I think even more so if if ad nauseum's posting these win rates, I'm sure there's some deck that's you know a piece away or you know someone's brainstorm away from being exactly where it needs to be, and I like them. Uh, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but I like the London Mulligan rule. I'm a fan of it at this point, but I, I worry that uh, a dark combo winter is on the horizon. Oh, boy. 
A lot of people invoking Combo Winter these days. It's interesting. Yeah. And Ozian was one of those decks that was on the unofficial watch list for the London Mulligan. And I think its performance was a little bit buried from the narrative of the event because it didn't make top eight. Right. I mean, they did really well, but they're just not so good at limited or they had really bad pulls. They got flooded out. It's just, it's frustrating. It's frustrating to not super know all that. And I get that the whole point of this is to pick a really good magic player, not exactly a really good modern player, quote unquote. But I'd be interested to see what ad nauseum could do in a tournament that did not have a limited portion. Also using the London Mulligan rule. Yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, we'll talk about that in a minute because I think that they're all going to have the London Mulligan rule pretty soon. But anyway, <gasps> so the other decks on that list of high performers that uh, match win percentage wise included Hardened Scales, which is the winner of Grand Prix Yokohama, at, but yet placed nobody into the top eight, which was kind of a big surprise. I think the best finisher on Hardened Scales was LSV, who went eight and two in modern and, and I think kind of barely missed uh, with a kind of a poor limited performance. But yeah, that just goes to show you, I mean, variance is very real. And even when you're someone of LSB, LSV's caliber, sometimes the draft doesn't go your way. Right. I mean, there's a world where you don't open any uncolor rares and you don't have any fixing and you're just playing like mid-range two-color while your opponent's slamming down Planeswalkers. Right. And then the last uh, couple of decks on this list is that were plus 54 percent match win rate include humans and somehow jund which nobody seems to want to talk about but jund actually had a pretty good showing from the five pilots who brought it um logan nettles went eight and two i believe as well which is which is pretty impressive um i know that reed was on jund but uh yeah none of those really i think uh logan almost made the top eight but just barely missed as well yeah in a field where people are starting with smaller hand sizes because they're mulliganing and that you if one would think that possibly combo would be more represented, early hand disruption is very good. So speaking of hand disruption, both Jund and The Rock were above 50%, and yet Grixis Death Shadow was 45% win rate. Obviously, these decks play out very differently. The Rock is a little bit closer to Jund in its playstyle than it is to Death Shadow, but this could challenge the notion that Thoughtseize decks are also well-positioned in a land where London Mulligan is the norm. Yeah, it's also wild to see uh, Gris's Death Shadow's uh, meta share fall. I believe at one point Dave was saying right around Phoenix's arrival, it was the number one deck and then got pushed down to number two. And here we see it below Tron, Phoenix, Humans, Control, and Dredge. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I was surprised to see it fall below Dredge, for sure. Especially with the kind of vocal contingent of people online who seem to be registering Shadow. Um, and that it had a couple of strong performances recently at the GP level, and it just kind of totally whiffed. I've been seeing a lot of players online in the deck lists that appear on Goldfish and in 5-0 lists running this 2-Jace, 4-Bobble, 0-Serum Visions package. And I am kind of piggybacking off something I heard on the MTG Grindcast, but after doing a couple leagues with the deck, I gotta say, I really miss Serum Visions. And I don't think Jace is all that great, especially when you're playing two of them. Why do, why does only two why does two of them matter? It just doesn't come up enough to help you with filtering. I just think that the filtering isn't quite as good as what Serum Visions is doing, where it's both filtering and drawing you a card. Yeah, looting. Sorry, it's like you know, Jace has looting, but right. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Well, why don't we talk about the rest of the the decks in the top six since we since we started to talk about a couple of them? So we talked about Tron, 
which was the number one and represented with 75 players, like we said, 15% of the meta. Um, and is it Phoenix had a 52.7% win win rate on not on bad overall? Yeah, not bad. Plus 50 or above 50%, even in a field where uh, supposedly a lot of people were ready for it. Put one deck into the top eight. So what do you guys think about, about is it Phoenix at, and its performance this weekend? One thing that I thought was really interesting about Phoenix was that it was not on camera very much. I felt like it just wasn't there. It really seemed like they tried to show us more fun, interesting, and fringe matchups at the beginning. And it wasn't really until, uh, I believe at, at one point later rounds, we saw the Dredge vs. Phoenix matchup. Yeah, that was like round 15. Yeah, yeah. It was the yeah. first time I saw <laughs> that, where there was a, the, it was someone's winning in with Is It Phoenix versus Dredge, that old chestnut. And it was, it was funny. I was like, this is the match they've been hiding from us all weekend. Next mm. thing we're going to do is turn around, and the top eight's going to be four Phoenix and four Dredge decks. Not so. Not so. Not so. Did any of what you saw this weekend make you feel like you don't want to play Phoenix anymore, Stan? No, not at all. If anything, I'm just kind of getting tired from winning all the time with it because the deck is so good and I've gotten much better with it. I will say, Mm. though, I love that no one's really talking about Phoenix after this tournament. It's like we totally forgot that we were in panic mode just three weeks ago. I'm not not in panic mode anymore. I think there are some other bigger stories that overshadowed it, but I think Phoenix clearly did very good and got... We'll get into a second to the top eight, but found its way in there. I think that a lot of factors went into making this harder to point at as some sort of concrete evidence of anything, but I don't think that we saw phoenix naysayers vindicated or anything yeah i mean i do think that the the fever pitch around faithless looting has gone down a little bit so we'll see where that kind of goes in the medium term one of the most interesting things to me about is it phoenix actually was the fact that there was this crazy new combo version that was popping up here and there and i couldn't get a good sense of what the results were like around that version but a number of people said that they played it and would definitely play it again and the combo basically is running a three of of noxious revival as instead of running gut shot or surgical extraction from what I could tell in the deck list. And um, apparently what that does is it lets you pull up this old combo that people used to do four or five years ago with pyromancers, ascension uh, noxious revival manamorphose and something like thought scour to just infinitely mill your opponents or, or pull, you know, cast, a kind of unbounded number of spells. Now, Zach, you've you've played around with this before, right? Yeah, my uh, my entry into modern was Storm, and this is one of the the ways you won with the deck when you couldn't get out the Storm Kill with Grape Shot or Empty the Warrens. And it's hard to do. Like, uh, the there's a guy who was on camera for the deck tech explaining it, and he was like faltering when he was explaining his very own combo. And like that's sort of the, the level of it where it's okay. Well, this copy places that card back on top, but you draw it when that resolves, and then you're placing this on top after. And it's it's really powerful, but I feel like it at a at a higher REL level where you maybe can't take things back and a couple missteps could ruin the combo, I would be a little hesitant. I played it mostly at an LGS kitchen table level where I'm allowed to go, oh, I'm sorry, I meant to cast this spell in this order. But if if things were on the line, I don't know if I would be taking uh, a, that complicated of a deck out. Yeah. I mean, the thing that was super interesting to me about it was the, the many heads of Is It Phoenix just sort of continue to grow, right? Sure. Like, is it an aggro deck? Is it a control deck? Is it a mid-range deck? No, it's not that, probably. No, it's but a combo now, deck. But now it has a combo version <laughs> yeah. as well, and it's like, okay, so so really what this deck is just taking 
the core of ec- excellent blue red spells that exist in modern and kind of changing the win condition depending on what you feel like is right for the meta at a given point in time and for some qu- portion of players this weekend it was putting an infinite combo into there to be able to kill them all a storm which was kind of fascinating to see happen yeah we joked around last week or the week before that there's not that many flex slots so showing your spice is one or two cards but apparently you can change three cards and showing your spice is infinite combo right right the third most popular deck was humans which also had a as we mentioned a 54.3 percent win rate and there were 53 players running humans in the tournament. And this was the deck that won the event, and it placed three copies into the top eight. Yeah. Yep. It looked awesome this weekend. From oh, yeah. On camera, I was just like, man, I wish I had humans. All right, this will be my first hot take of the day. Okay. Humans I is good. I think humans... <laughs> not only that, but I think humans is... By far one of the top five best decks in modern, and people just forgot oh, yeah. about it. And it used to run wild with the format, which forced Control, Jeskai, and Blue White to gain a little bit of meta share. And now conditions are good again for humans to just kind of get back out there because Control, while it was popular at this event, doesn't feel to me like is is like it's as popular as Blue White was last year. You know, after Jace was. Print, uh, unbanned and Teferi got printed. Yeah. I mean, people also have said online that humans had a little bit of trouble with KCI as well. Yeah, and that's so right. that's part of the reason that it was it was suppressed for a little bit. I have a different take that I would like to, to throw out there about humans. And um, it also includes the next deck on the, on the popularity list, which is Blue White Control. And that is where we get to the point where a number of people made it sound like the open deck lists were much more impactful on the way that this tournament played out than the london mulligan actually was and these two decks are supposedly the proof of that that happening because people had perfect information to know what they needed to name with meddling mage and at the same time the blue white control players knew which pieces to keep on their draws and when they needed to maul better in order to address the opponents that they were playing because of the open deck list thing so the first thing I want to say about this really quick was I talked with a listener on Reddit about this kind of idea that humans was going to take a big bump just because of the open deck list. I don't know if this is the only reason. I don't think it was the only reason, but I kind of was doubting it when we were chatting on Reddit. I think I have to do a little bit of a mea culpa because it seemed like I had an understanding that players generally knew what their opponents were playing anyway because they were familiar with archetypes. And also scouting apparatuses on pro teams seem to have gotten to a level where they were very, you know, sophisticated, right? I think people kind of generally knew what people were playing very fast in a tournament, kind of spreads like gossip through the first couple of rounds of construct, and then everybody knows what's going on. Apparently, that's not quite a, quite the case that I thought it was, where these open deck lists actually help these perfect information decks a, a lot as far as knowing what cards they needed to name, if someone had something spicy they needed to name and also just even knowing exactly what someone was playing against you in game one turned out to be potentially a huge bump yeah absolutely meddling mage like old cards that can name a card are very powerful but require a very certain decision to really execute that power and knowing if your opponent's running a one of versus a four of really helps you inform that decision so if you're playing against an opponent and you think that they're on some sort of weird scapeshift deck, but it turns out that it's a you know hybrid scapeshift whatever, and you went all in on the scapeshift plan, and it turns out they have a backup, 
now you are ready for that. Now you're aware of that. And I know that's a little more fringe, but just being able to be aware of what your opponent's on and not getting tripped up by some interesting deck choices is interesting to say the least. Yeah. So this kind of leads into my first hot take of this whole thing, which is I think these two decks will not perform as well at the Grand Prix level going forward because those players will not have access to open deck lists. I don't think they will anyway. And certainly if you're an LGS player, you shouldn't necessarily take this bump in performance from blue eye control and humans as um, a definite something that you're going to benefit from because of the way that you get to engage with uh, the opponents that you have. Yeah. I also want to touch on how the London Mulligan rule is very, very good for humans as there are two one drops in that deck, Aether Vile and Noble Hierarch, Noble Hierarch and Champion that- of the Parish. Well, no, no, yeah, but for this purpose, Aether Vile and Noble Hierarch are really the glue that holds the deck together in the early stages, because it's help you slug things out, it's fixing your mana, and being able to consistently hit those is very important. I mean, I've played plenty of games at LGS level against a humans player, well, they'll go to five and go, well, I'm not going to go to four for a Vile, let's do this, but, you know... As we talk about London Mulligan, seeing those two extra cards and going, oh, great, a Vile and a Hierarch, we're good here. Like, I, I don't care what I get at this point. Everything's great. So I really think being able to more consistently get your mana fixers and uncounterable creature putter inners is just a good thing. So I've got two things. One, touching on what Dave said, which is beware of buying into humans based on the weekend's performance. I believe humans is a really, really good deck. I don't think you can go wrong by playing humans unless you live in a town where everyone is playing Control and Jeskai and Blue White and a bunch of sweepers. Yeah. Trust me. Don't listen to Dave. I mean, well, let's be clear. (laughs) I'm not trying to say that this is not a tier one deck. What I'm trying to say is that it's it's going to be played under different conditions when you when you get to play it in competitive play than the pros did just because of the open deck list thing all right that's that's fair i I do have a second question for zach okay zach zach you said something over the weekend that i don't think i would ever expect to hear you say which was you want to try playing blue white control what happened or what did you see over the course of the weekend that made you even consider that deck because it is not running red and you can't do Blood Moons and Blue-White Control. Well, you can in Jeskai, but that's neither here nor there. You're going to cast Blood Moon in Jeskai? I didn't, oh my I didn't God. say... I said you could. I didn't say you should. <laughs> I've done it. So, Blue-White Control is a deck that's always looked a little too slow for me, a little reactionary. I'm the kind of person that likes to dump their threats and dump their hand very quickly. But seeing, like, the Galaxy Brain multiple-level moves or people are holding on to removal or resolving as Kanta. It, it just looked like it had a lot more moving pieces than I had given it credit for, and it could do a lot more than I initially maybe thought it could. It's a deck that back when I was running Scred was a very hard matchup, and it felt very frustrating to play. So I think I sort of had some ingrained biases with it because of that. But just seeing how really deep it was and the level of strategy needed i feel like where i am at currently in my journey as a magic player and what's interesting me is maybe no longer dump your hand aggro strategies but more reactive puzzle-esque games shane somewhere's his ear is his ears are burning right now as you say that (laughs) he's like don't fall for the trap of playing reactive decks in modern don't do it look i i totally feel you though i know that you remember that when you and I met in person the first time, Zach, you beat me 
play when you were playing Scred and I was playing Blue White Control. Yeah, it felt good. I mean, that doesn't happen often. You crushed me. Yeah, I mean, Chandra Emblem will do that. That was a different era of Blue White Control. It was it was pre uh, it was pre Teferi for sure, and it might even oh, have been yeah. pre Jace. Yeah, it was it was pre Jason banning as well. So yeah, the deck was not the boogeyman it, I have come to know and fear and yeah. maybe love. Yeah. So the reason we're talking about blue white, by the way, quickly, is that it was fourth in the in the meta share and it had a fifty point four win percentage. Just so that we're kind of ticking down the list for for those tr- keeping score at home. Zach, if you ever want to borrow my blue white control deck, I will let you do that. I, I will also let you borrow it. You can borrow both of them and play them against each other whenever you want. <laughs> I'm going to mash them together and play 120 cards. I love it. I will say, Zach, when you were typing up your reactions to watching blue-white control being played, you, you, we were watching the round where Shaheen Sarani had a, um, a feature match, and he is a well-known, long-time blue-white control master, someone who tries to play control, some variation of blue-white control in basically every format. So I, I think that you were kind of watching the best, the best of the archetype, and it was super interesting to see after the match, you know, he, he kind of said... Now I'm not going to quote him, but on camera he was basically like, "the uh, the open decklist thing has been is a good enough rule change to make blue eye control a tier one deck, just because I know what cards I need in order to in order to try to play game one." Again, something that's that's going to be hard to translate to a level other than the pro tour, but worth noting here that maybe it got a little bit of bump off of that as well. Right. So the fifth most played deck was Dredge. 32 players ran it, and it had a 53.6% win rate. So I think Shane would be very happy. Do you think he would say it was still underplayed? I, I was literally just, Dredge is underplayed. Dredge is underplayed. Do you guys notice that he sings every episode now? <laughs> the last, like, four or five episodes, whenever we get to Dredge, he sings like a, a he makes up, like, a little song about different things. Adds so much richness to the podcast. Yeah, Shane has a background in theatrical arts, right? Yeah, he is. He was a theater major in college. <laughs> he played the lead in his local town's rendition of Cats. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was Fiddler. Fiddler Cats. It was a mashup. <laughs> Fiddler on the Cats. So this is another deck that we would probably think is better with the London Mulligan, and here with its nearly 54% win rate. I don't know if it's necessarily London Mulligan stuff or just the fact that Dredge is a crazy good deck. Well, And once again, people were packing main deck graveyard hate. We saw someone, they won this one, but we saw Blue Eye Control player resolve two rest in pieces, I believe, against Dredge, which is, that's just game over. But even in a field laden with hate out for it, Dredge managed to eke out an above 50% win rate. Yeah, I mean, I I'm not quite sure what to play, what to say about this. It feels like it's played the right amount. It keeps not perform, not coming through with kind of high level finishes, but keeps being a consistent performer in the metagame. I think it's a good deck. I feel like I do well against it personally, so it's kind of hard for me to. I feel I think I'm in the camp of people who believe that it's easily hated out by someone who knows what they're what they're doing. I could be wrong about that, but um, it it feels like of the this top. Six, which is Tron Phoenix Humans, Blue Eye Control, Dredge Shadow. Dredge is the deck I'm the least likely to pick up on this list. And I hate Tron. So so take that for what it's worth. I wonder if a Dredge player scoops if they're up against someone who does a game one rest in peace. I can tell you that they 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 scoop if against someone who does a turn one rest in peace because I've done that with Eldrazi uh Eldrazi Thalia 
and or Thalia Stompy, and it's uh, hilarious to see it happen. I don't know if you guys saw this on camera at the event. One of the Red Aldrazi players managed to land three Leyland of the Void turn zero for Dredge, and they decided to play that game out. And it did not go so well for Dredge. They were hard casting Necromibas off a Steam Vents. But uh, no, apparently at a comp REL level, you do not concede and you play that bad boy out. You have to. There's too much money on the line. Yeah. But yeah, they, it turns out it's really hard for Dredge to win by casting uh, three threes for three. Are any of you guys interested with, with in playing uh, Dredge at all? No, absolutely not. It's not the kind of magic I play. It That's the kind of magic that when Time Spiral was out, people were playing, and it felt like a different card game to me. Mm. I want to play creatures and turn them sideways. That is really what I'm all about. So you're ready for blue-eyed control. Well, <laughs> Social Colonnade's sort of like that, right? <laughs> yeah. It doesn't turn sideways, but yeah, I, well, I, that's fair. <laughs> if I'm bad at magic, it does. Yeah, that's true. You can have a Gideon of the Trials occasionally, or Gideon Blackblade. Yeah, Stan, I need to borrow your promo Blackblade, please. Okay. Yeah, I would play Dredge. I understand it pretty well, so I don't think it would be too hard for me to just pick it up and know what to do. I don't think I'll ever buy the deck. It's one of those that I think is a risky investment, because it's always kind of like Storm, kind of like Tron. It's one that's been banned so many times and just keeps surviving that I think... One of these days, there could be a final nail in the coffin. Yeah, I mean, as we talked about in the episode, it's had cards unbanned and then rebanned. It's just, it's a very hot potato. Right. So Yeah, I agree. There are very few decks in Modern that I hate as strongly as I think you guys hate some decks. But to answer your question specifically, Dave, if, if a friend of mine gave me their dredge deck... I think I would have fun. So now that we've talked about the top of the the meta game, we we kind of brushed over Tron for a second because Tron actually has an interesting story to go with it. It was the most represented deck, and so that was the way that Stan was correct about the meta game. Um, with seventy five players, it's not the only way. Well, one of one of the ways. Sorry, <laughs> the way his prediction <laughs> your prediction came true. But the thing that was really interesting about Tron, with all the hype around the London Mulligan this week, was it's aggregate win rate across all pilots was 47.7%. That's not very good. It doesn't seem like that's very good. I mean, it's definitely enough for to get a song out of Shane if he were on the podcast. Anything above 35 is just fine. <laughs> not, that's baseball. That's not... <laughs> it's not magic. I mean, I don't know. What do you guys think about that? I mean, it managed to put three asterisks decks into the top in the top eight uh with a sub 50 percent aggregate win rate I, i'm not sure what we can take away from that as a as kind of like a, a, a something we can apply so i've mentioned this before but tron used to be a deck that i was super scared of and then i learned how to beat it and it occurred to me that similar to dredge it's not that hard to actually hate it and what makes tron strong is that it is resilient and can beat hate and sometimes it'll just hard cast a worm coil or hard cast a karn but I think as you get more experienced players who understand the threats of the format, it gets a little easier to deal with a deck like Tron, which is basically just casting one spell a turn, and you either have your answers or you don't. Yeah, one of the commentators made a very good point, or, or, or a salient point that I found I struggled with at first, but the more I thought about it, the more I think it's true, and what that says is going to be interesting. But that Karn on turn three taking down against the field was not as good as it once was, or was in other fields. Looking at Phoenix, Humans, Control, Dredge, hitting one of those cards, 
like if you hit a flip thing in the ice, that's not great, but those birds are going to come in and kill Karn and do some more damage and humans has plenty of creatures, etc. So it's not that Karn's not good, but the field it was in, aside from a deck like Death Shadow, we're taking out, you know, a Death Shadow is probably GG or something like that. These other decks have enough threat density and more of a go wide strategy where Karn kind of struggles. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a fascinating point, actually, that Karn is great at dealing with one for ones. Because it gives you it gives you a chance to to get a couple of cards of value out of it that way, but if you're too wide, um, it doesn't really help. And there's a bunch of decks here at the top of the metagame that are kind of wide and fast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I heard Autumn Burchett mention something similar on that episode of Game where Autumn was being interviewed, and they were talking about running a Tron list even last year that didn't have the four car the four Carns, and that card is such a darling for the deck, but I think it goes to show you that occasionally you need to kill your darlings, reevaluate the deck strategy, and consider whether some of these former pillars are actually all that important as the meta evolves. Yeah, I mean, if you had told me that even six months ago, I don't, I would have been very hard to believe. And now, once again, looking at the list, like, I, I just don't know. I just don't know. It doesn't seem as good as it once was. It's hard to say that though when it put two. It was the highest meta share, and it put two decks into the top eight. That would have been three. That's yeah. um, that. I, I feel like everybody was kind of have this consensus that it's the deck that improved the most than London Mulligan, but maybe other decks improved more. Even though it got better, other decks also got better. I'm I'm really having a hard time figuring out how to reconcile this particular data point. Yeah, I, I think the way I look at it and think about it is there's such there is so many Tron decks that it's just attrition its way into the top eight. I know that's, you know, there's, this is a game of skill, ultimately, but there's just so many that some had to filter up, right? Yeah, as I like to say, if you flip a coin enough times, eventually it will land on Karn. As I like to say, that's funny. (laughs) (laughs) No no joke on your end, Dave. (laughs) I wonder if in this day and age, I'd rather be playing four main deck Worm Coil than four main deck Karn. Maybe even playing a third Ugin? I love Ugin. Oh, yeah. U- like, Ugin it solves the problem, right? If you're struggling against go-wide strategies, what's better than come down and exile all your stuff? Oh, and your enchantments. Yeah, the problem right. is you can't cast Ugin on turn three. Right. You know? Maybe Tron's done some mean spirit. Guys. I was, I knew you were going to say that. For some reason. I was going to say Gemstone Zach. Cavern, Eternal Scourge. Problem solved. <laughs> Wait a minute. That sounds like another deck. Yeah, we'll get to that one later. A couple decks that I was a little surprised by their lackluster performance. For personal reasons, Esper Control, since I've been putting this one together, seeing it not do so great, kind of sad. It seemed like a really good strategy in a field with lots of Phoenix, but maybe if you're dealing with tons of Tron and Humans players, it can struggle in that meta. Yeah, I think it was funny that you, I don't know if you remember the interaction we had in our Slack channel, Stan, where you were like, I just sleeved up Esper Control, and at the same time, I put up a pull quote from uh, Seth basically from Saffron, Saffron Olive that said Esper Control had one of the worst conversion rates I've ever seen at a Mythic Championship. <laughs> it only converted 31% of its players from day one I to day two. I warned you, Stan. I so stood steadfast and true, and you, you did not heed the call. I'm, I'm, all I'll say is I'm not taking the deck apart until I play it at a shop. That's fair. That's, that's really reasonable, actually. Or in my basement. Yeah. Also, Amulet Titan. 44.8%. The deck with no bad matchups. That's the biggest shocker for me, for sure. 
You know, I don't like throwing salt on Amulet Titan, but the cult of Amulet Titan and this notion that no bad matchups, it only ever loses to itself, it feels like they're asking for trouble. Well, they're asking for someone like Aunt Andrew Ellen Bogan to call them out on Twitter and then end up in a in a moneyed gauntlet match with Edgar. I don't know if you saw all of that. I hope it happens. I hope it's streamed. Yeah, I, I hope it's streamed too. That would be incredible. Yeah. Is this what Richard Garfield wanted? Well, Richard Garfield did design Anti, so maybe maybe that is what he wanted. Yeah, uh, that was more about because they didn't think there'd be more expansions and wanted to get cards around than trying to put cold hard cash on the line, but that's fair. Unban Anti, you cowards. Yeah, put Anti in Modern. Put Anti in Modern Horizons. Yeah, I guess the last one I'll mention is Boggles with sub 40%. So sad. So those are some decks that maybe let us down or didn't perform, but well, this deck did not have a top eight as we'll get to shortly, it had an unreal day two conversion rate for War Prison, which saw eleven of the fourteen players go on to day two. Seventy eight point six percent. Although the deck did not take down the tournament as I predicted, that is a very good conversion rate, and I think that shows us the power level of the deck that so many players got to day two with it. And as I mentioned, it's a deck that really, really, really rewards a deep knowledge of it and knowing what to wear for and knowing how to stay one step ahead of your opponent. So I really think an open deck list helps hugely there. If you are at instant speed grabbing a Pithing Needle, knowing what to put it on a turn ahead of time can be unreal. Yeah, Pithing Needle is an interesting card. It almost operates like a counterspell against your Planeswalkers, right? Tron tries to play Karn, respond, War of Invention to get Pithing Needle to name a Karn. Always a play that we love. <laughs> I saw it happen once, and now I'm never going to be over it. <laughs> I was just going to say, and this is the way that Zach's prediction was right, was because War Prison, I believe, had the highest conversion rate from day one to day two. Um, no, Jun did at 80%. Oh, Jun had 80%. All right. Well, Five close. Jun players, four of them made day two. Close. So smaller numbers overall. Yep. Stan, you look very shocked. 80%? My God. Can we try to figure out what may be going on with Junt? I think the hand disruption is really good. Is it just the combination of hand disruption, removal spells, plus some real clocks? Plus some real good pros playing it, honestly. Like I said, you know, Jabberwocky, I believe, is Logan Nettles, and he, that's one of the best Magic Online players that yeah. hasn't quite hit on the the Mythic Champions Championship scene quite yet. It, there's also that indie pro player, uh, Reed Duke, I think his name is. <laughs> Yeah, almost made it top eight this time. Yeah, so close. So before we go to the top eight, there's one deck I think that Zach and I would love to talk about because it's sort of a marriage of a, some things that are near and dear to our hearts. And that would be the Red Eldrazi deck that Mark Jacobson piloted almost to a top eight berth. There was another player who was piloting a deck very close to that, uh, Yuki Matsumoto. Very similar decks. Red, Red Eldrazi looking to abuse the power of Simeon Spirit Guide, Chalice of the Void, Serum Powder, and Eternal Scourge all in one package. M listeners might know that I've been playing the uh, the Thalia Stompy list, so the, the deck that over the weekend was called White Eldrazi. And Zach is our resident warden who's been playing a Red Prison list. And this is sort of a deck that combines parts of each of those into one um, one shell. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, something I love about this deck is when you, if you just look at the ma mana curve for the creatures by themselves, it seems like a very fair normal mid-range deck, but those creatures are not being cast on those turns for those mana cost. No, they are not. 
And that's sort of a, a big part of this. You have Simeon Spirit Guide, you have the Adrazi Temple, you have Gemstone Caverns, and then also a fun little mana rock that is more than that, Serum Powder, which you got to see its big time debut here. Yeah, it's really interesting to me that this was the deck that seemed to bubble to the top of the the list as far as performance trying to abuse the London Mulligan plus Serum Powder. So that was something we identified on the last episode or on the London Mulligan episode that um, was the card that people were trying to abuse the most with a new Mulligan. And somehow it's this kind of weird mix of prison and Eldrazi Temple deck is where we're going. And it really is kind of like a legacy deck in a lot of ways, right? Yeah, I mean, the Chandra Torture Defiance, the Chalice of the Void, and then you Reality Smasher, I feel like, sees, uh, was seeing more play in the Mimic, too, as well was seeing more play in the Eldrazi Stompy deck in Legacy. But seeing, yeah, this sort of Stompy Prison Red Midrange deck is just warming my heart. So is the reason this deck is playing Red simply Eldrazi Obligator? Chandra Torture Defiance main deck as well. Yeah, at least in one of the builds. What's more important to the strategy? Are you going into red for Obligator, for Chandra, or because you want both? You also open a ton of sideboard cards as well. Mm, sure. Yeah, I do think it's mostly for Obligator, though, because that just helps you clear a... It's a card that helps you clear like a persistent a single threat on the other side of the board. Bring it over to your side for one turn and swing into to crack with it, so... Yeah, it certainly wasn't anybody on this podcast, but I have heard Eldrazi Obligator called a Winmore card or too fair in modern. But every time I saw it on screen, what it was doing was closing out a game that the opponent might have been able to come back from. Uh, most famously, I saw it against Dredge take a prize amalgam and just swing in and put the match out of reach. But that's an extra, what, six points of damage total on that attack? And a deck like Dredge, as we talked about, can come back and just burst right through. So pushing back those few extra points can really mean a lot. Yeah, speaking of sideboard, I'm looking at Mark Jacobson's list, and he's got two Blood Moon in the side. How do you run Blood Moon along with Eldrazi Temple? Sometimes it's just good enough. Yeah, you just give up sometimes and, and attack someone's mana base instead of trying to power things out on your own. Yeah, it's worth noting you're, you're running a Ghost Quarter and three Waste. So you can Ghost Quarter yourself before the Blood Moon comes down to make sure you have the Waste. Exactly. And also, Serum Powder helps get you the uh, colorless mana you need to cast all your Eldrazi stuff. Yeah, if you actually cast one of those. Frankly, I was less concerned with the source of colorless as I was for losing all the value you get off of Eldrazi Temple. Well, we always talk about how you need to follow Blood Moon up with a threat, and playing a Thought Not Seer on turn 4, Reality Smasher on 5 after a Blood Moon, is really good enough. Yeah. Makes sense. One of the most interesting things to me about this deck was that Eldrazi Mimic was back which is a card that we, has, we haven't seen in modern sense, that kind of Eldrazi Winter moment where people were trying to you know, force out that uh, Reality Smasher on turn three after an Eldrazi Mimic on turn two and then kind of like swinging in for 10. Um, it's interesting to see that that is a line of play that's open to this deck as well because of just having that card included, which to me has seemed too weak. And it's certainly too weak for any of the Eldrazi decks that I've been playing around with, the black-white taxes, or or the the white Thalia version. But in this one, it works exactly how it should. It's just like they ported that legacy powerful legacy deck down and here it is. So Zach, do you think you want to try this deck out? I think you actually have all of these cards from conversation. 
So I have all of these cards aside from uh, a Drowsy Temple, which I can pick up easy. But I also don't have Serum Powders because when you told everybody to buy them, I went, oh, that's fine. I'm spending too much money on magic anyway. And then I need to pay a lot more than I would have otherwise. Yeah. So, I mean, they've gone back down for what it's yeah. worth. And, and so I think they're, they're more in the achievable zone again. They're but, at 10 bucks a pop right now. Yeah, they were at 20 and now they're back down to 10. One last thought about this deck is it really feels sort of like the best of both worlds of the decks I like, because it reminds me of Prison in that it runs Chalice of the Void and Blood Moon in the side, and it reminds me a lot of Scred in that you're just playing efficient beaters and swinging with them. And I think that Reality Smasher is probably just a little better than Stormbreath Dragon. I mean, the extra point of damage counts, the trample is good, and the card discard claws are all all good things, so... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a pretty fair assessment. So yes, I think I will play this deck, but not anytime soon. I'm more likely to rent it and play it on MTGO than I am in paper. I hear that. Me too. All right, so now let's move over to the top eight. The moment we've all been waiting for. Yeah, so we've been dancing around this all night. It's, you know, finally come to just do the dank thing. So in first place, we have Humans, which is piloted by Eli Loveman. In second place, we have Affinity, piloted by one Matthew Sperling. Next on the list, we have two Tron decks, the first one piloted by Alexander Hayne, the other one by Adrian Zhu, or Zhu. So in the semifinals, both the Affinity and Humans player played Tron and defeated them. And then rounding out the rest of the list, we have Humans by Brian Brown-Dune, another Humans list by Chris Kvartek, and Is It Phoenix list by Javier Dominguez, and then finally at the end, we have Tian Win with Titan Shift. So the first thing about this top eight I think we should say is that Tian Win was the points leader going into the top eight on that Titan Shift deck. And we sort of glossed over it during when we were talking about the decks of the Swiss. But I thought that was pretty interesting that a uh, archetype master, which apparently uh, Tian is, was was able to do so well and just take it all the way into a first seed berth in the, uh, in the top eight. Unfortunately, eliminated in the first round of the top eight. But... Um, clearly someone who loves titan shift in fact in his on-camera interview he said that they were uh, i forget who was interviewing him i think it might have been tim willoughby said well how did you select your deck and uh tian said well i selected my deck in 2014 yeah <laughs> i believe in the in the same sentence it was so during eldrazi winter i had a choice to play eldrazi i chose to play titan shift yeah so i kind of love that so when we refer to titan shift is that the same as red green valakit Yes. Right. Which had nine other pilots over the course of the weekend. And in general, the deck was sub 50%. It finished on average with 46.6% win rate for the weekend. Pretty interesting. You know, the, the real talk around this deck was that Tian had identified that Tron was going to be huge in the metagame and was running three copies of Monvuli Acid Moss in the main to help oh yeah. oh yeah yeah which seemed to help it a lot to have a piece of land destruction where you could hit one of the tron lands and then also i believe the other half of that card is that you get to go and you get to ramp a land out of your deck right you get to do like a rampant growth basically yeah absolutely a quick little throwback from my lore when i started getting magic in magic more seriously and really learning the rules was around time spiral block and i had a friend who was running what we would now call a ponza deck with this card and it is so 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 brutal especially when you get it out on turn three and all of a sudden you have five mana and they're down on two and sometimes decks don't get to play that third land and they're just gone i i think especially in this field it was a very good call and i think that it's maybe a little underplayed that card or this deck 
that card. That card. I, I think that with this deck, it, I don't think, I think it's good. I think it's definitely a good deck. I think what we're seeing here is more of the maxim of that in modern, if you love a deck, you can get good enough with it to do things like this, or that a lot of decks have that range. Where I don't know if I would call this deck like a tier one deck. We can definitely talk about that. But this dude took it and did very good with it and has dedicated his modern career to it. Do you think Acid Moss is underplayed because it's four mana? Yeah, I, I think you definitely have to be playing it on turn three to get the maximum value out of it. So what do we think about the fact that there were three humans decks in this top eight? I think that humans is a very good deck, and we'll see how things go in the future. We talked about with a deputy detention how they maybe didn't make that a human to not make that deck better, and it's just in the deck anyway. The deck doesn't care. It's so good. Yeah. That card is so good. Like, I can't believe it. <laughs> I mean, we, I think we identified it during the, the spoiler episode of Ravnica Allegiance, but it's just amazing to have a creature that you can exile any permanent and multiples of the same name from. It's, it's an incredible card for, tools, for decks like this to have. Yeah, absolutely. And especially when you can vial it in. And it's how do you play around it? Like either they have it or they don't, and you got to just do it anyway because you can't play around a card like that. Yeah, I'm not surprised. If anything, I'm surprised that there weren't more humans players. We're all people. Be yourself. Be yourself in card form. Zach touched on something that I think was the most impressive from all the, the human decks that I watched over the weekend, and with Eli Loveman, the winner in particular, was the way that they set up game plans to maximize the value out of both Reflector Mage and Deputy of Detention coming in off of Aether Vial, like removal spells, was incredible and just totally like the key to understanding how to play humans I felt like was really bound up with those two cards and bringing them in and flashing them in in opportune situations whenever you could so many so many of the matches that I watched Eli play were just really came down to naming the right card with meddling mage and then following up shortly after with a reflector mage to really take somebody out of the game for a couple of turns and just win yeah I I think this maybe marks an evolution in humans because it used to be a you know go wide very fast deck you're dumping your hand you're pumping these creatures you're swinging in but with deputy detention and reflector mage you're playing a more reactive slow game and you're waiting for them to make a misstep or where you can really punish them and then unload with your creatures I, I believe it was in the finals where there was a point where matthew sperling had sacrificed living to an arcbound ravager and then he viled in the uh reflector mage and it's just oh that's that's so brutal yeah. like oh with the trigger on the stack good lord yeah, there was another game in the in the finals where um, Eli had named Arcbound Ravager with Meddling Mage, and Sperling had two yeah. Arcbound Ravagers in his hand, and that and was he blind like, named it. Ugh. Yeah, exactly. Just sometimes you roll those dice, and it lands on sixes, baby. Yep. I was impressed to see Affinity in second place, and there was some chatter in our chat that Affinity might be good against humans, but Eli Loveman did not make it seem that way. Well, I mean, in the in the pre-finals interview. Eli Loveman said that he had heard that um, uh, that Matt Sperling had described the Affinity versus Humans matchup as a buy for Affinity, Oof. which is you know kind of sort of normal pro level player kind of hyperbole maybe. But um, I was surprised that it seemed like it was a pretty pretty resounding matchup on the side of Humans. But that's small sample size. I think there were some good draws on the human side, some bad draws on the on the Affinity side, and just kind of went that way you know that you can you can lose pretty fast against humans yeah absolutely so how happy would you guys be if from this 
moment forward, we never see more than one Is It Phoenix deck per top eight. Will people stop screaming? That would quell my fears. But a deck's allowed to be good, right? It's not that the deck was good. It's that it was oppressive and that a lot of decks... It was it was a lot of decks. It, it was a big representation and was doing very well. It wasn't there a few weeks ago where there were three in a top eight similar to how humans is over here. I don't remember the exact tournament, but that sounds like something that would have happened at some point in 2019. I, I believe Shane's response was he wasn't convinced yet. Would you feel better if humans becomes the new Phoenix and now we have two to three humans decks and or two to three Tron decks from in top eights for the next few months? I am personally not as upset about that because I play mono red prison and torpor orb just wins against humans. But I, I think overall it's not good for me. I would personally like that because I have a good matchup, but I think that's not healthy for the format. So I have this theory that humans and Tron are decks that actually promote format health. I want to run it past you guys and see what you think, because I kind of see those two decks as kind of pillars in a paper, scissor rock game where humans is good against Tron control is good against humans and tron is good against control and then you create these three pillars and decks and brewers can innovate to kind of find a room between the cracks do you think there's anything to that balance i mean i think that in my mind whether that particular like categorization was totally 100 percent correct or or not i think that they're the metagame feels very stable to me right now and I do think that that's a moment where some people can have fun. People who are brewers can can potentially come up with new decks. But that overall having a somewhat stable metagame with a lot of options is good for players like us. Because we want to be able to try different decks. We want to be able to play the decks that, that we like and have them feel a little bit competitive. You know, we're not worried about winning at the Pro Tour. We're winner, worried about 5 owing a, a league or 4 owing a, you know, FNM. And so it still feels to me like things are generally pretty good, at least based on the decks that we saw this weekend in, in Modern, with the, with the London Mulligan and without the, the London Mulligan, right? Did that totally just override your question, or what do you think? I mean, I think we kind of agreed, but without doing so explicitly. You know, I guess we're talking about the format being healthy for different reasons. You're saying it's stability. I'm saying these decks encourage both innovation and also have clear answers to one another. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I can agree with that too. The pillars of the format feel like th decks that are fair to me ultimately. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, there are some decks that are unfair, you know, dredge is annoying and can pop up occasionally and things like that. But it, it feels to me like, you know, if it's Tron humans, is it Phoenix, a couple other decks like that, that you really have to keep an eye on. That seems like reasonable things to comprise the majority of the metagame and then occasionally getting hit with something unfair um, feels acceptable to me, I guess. I think it's certainly an interesting take, and I think that it definitely puts my maybe doom and gloom in comparison. I, I think you're right, and I think a way that I think about that too is with cards like Meddling Mage and Dippy Detention that you're going to diversify your decks as well. And go more in and on, you know, different removal spells run a dismember in addition to collective brutality alongside fatal push, etc. So I think that's probably good for format health as well. And I sort of like the diversity that entails. Yeah. I think we're transitioning really quickly away from the top eight into sort of like the takeaways that we have for casual spikes 
from what we learned from this tournament, right? So talking about format stability, format diversity is kind of one thing that I think is, you know, we didn't get any data from this particular tournament that made it feel like the, the metagame was suddenly becoming much less healthy or broken in the wake of the London Mulligan. So what do you guys think about the London Mulligan in general and how it's maybe going to going to apply soon to people who just play at LGSs? Do you think it's going to be applied? I think it will, and I hope it does. I Granted, we have not seen what horrors might lie with combo and what could be unleashed, but from my experience playing online with all those leagues we jammed and uh, playing with people at my LGS between rounds using that rule, I've really liked it, and it's been really enjoyable for me. And I don't know if that's just because I was doing even okay with it, but it just seemed to make a lot, a lot more games feel less unwinnable or feel like the hopes were a little higher so i like it i hope it gets implemented and we'll see i agree i hope it gets implemented i think it makes mulligans feel better i think it makes post board games a little more easy to navigate especially if you need to mulligan aggressively matt sperling tweeted immediately after the form after the tournament that he hopes london mulligan is only applied to formats that exist on arena and formats that exist in Magic Online keep the scry mulligan, which seems really confusing. I, you know, I wonder if his opinion of that is solely based on his experience from the MC, but I don't see that being a particularly healthy environment for players who are coming into different formats over the course of their careers, you know, Magic competitors. Yeah, I mean, I kind of hate this take just because I think it has to be one rule. There's no reason for there to be multiple rules for for magic as far as the mulligan comes especially in comp- formats that can be competitive right so i guess if if edh wanted to have a different mulligan rule and in some ways it does that would be okay like that wouldn't matter much to me because that it's kind of a different game but modern isn't that fundamentally different game from limited to me it, where i would want to have a, a base level rule about the about the game change that much from one format to another. I think we need one one rule. Yeah, uh, I think EDH is also a game where there's a lot of table rules or house rules, and I, I think when you sit down to EDH, there's sort of an expectation of people are going to talk about what they want out of this game, what's not allowed, etc. So having a mulligan rule that could change feels a lot more suited there. Where oh, are we playing with this? Do you guys do the one free one? Do you do two free if there's no lands, etc. Where a more competitive more you know modern minded format it's you don't really sit down everyone sits down knowing what the deck what the game is what the rules are etc it's you don't go oh well where we play we play a land and we draw a card every time we play a land okay well you're not playing modern then goodbye so it's it's a little different with that i don't know what do you think about that stan would you want to see that happen no i think it's pretty confusing yeah i thought it was a novel idea so i I did give it some thought and I didn't want to dismiss it out the bat, but it feels like the negatives sort of outweigh the positives. And I think the positives of the London Mulligan, just to tie a bow on this discussion, I think the positives of the London Mulligan are huge for enjoyment of Magic the Gathering games. I, I said this a couple of episodes ago. I still feel this way after even after watching the Mythic Championships this weekend. I mean, if it breaks some decks, I'm sorry. Those decks are just going to go. I think that's what the story is. So I'm hopeful as well that it gets implemented soon. And if it's anything like when the Vancouver Mulligan got implemented, that would be about two or three months from now is when we might expect to see them actually try to roll it out as a new rule if they like the data that they saw too. 
yet likely for the the next time a set came out at that brew at least. Yeah. So next takeaway is from the meta that we saw at the Mythic Championships. What do you what do you guys think casual spikes playing at the types of tournaments that we play at can expect to see as a result of what happened at this modern at this modern huge tournament? So my biggest takeaway over the weekend and especially talking about this with you guys right now is that I think decks are going wider and that sort of the protect this, the queen strategy that GDS has isn't maybe as good right now. So I would say to someone playing at a local level, be more willing to have rafts in your sideboard and be more willing to have the main board. I think that's something that's going to pay off, especially if they're exile effects. I think anger of the gods is a card to keep your eye on. And if you can try to run some, I like it. I think that that's sort of what people are already thinking about, but that does push you towards maybe playing some decks that can actually run Wraths, right? Like right, Blue exactly. Eye Control did okay. Uh, some people say that was because of the open deck list and the London Mulligan, but maybe going back to a Terminus or just kind of normal Blue Eye Control deck could be a thing to do if you like that kind of deck. So I like that take. I think my biggest takeaway from this was if you are a person who plays at tournaments, you know, store tournaments every week and you were seeing a lot of Phoenix and you're starting to pack a lot of graveyard hate, I think you need to be ready with, I mean, Zach touched on wrath kind of hate for humans. I think you need to be ready to face Tron too, because I much more than you already were, because I think those are both decks that people like to play. They performed really well at the tournament. I think the way that people look at this on like a first level read of how the tournament went is going to just say, oh, humans and Tron are good now, and I have one of these two decks, or I can get one of these two decks, I'm going to bring it to my LGS now instead of whatever I was playing before. I would expect that at least for the next month or six weeks or so, that that if you're playing in a store, you're probably going to see more Tron and humans than you did before, regardless of the fact that there were mitigating factors there. The decks that I was most impressed by this tournament, besides humans, were Ad Nauseum, and hardened scales Mm -hmm. so i think while tron and humans sort of captured a lot of the narrative from the event ad nauseum and hardened scales was kind of operating beneath the surface and seems like more of a surprising threat than people are giving them credit for right now yeah especially in a post london mulligan format the big thing i think that people should keep in mind here in addition to all of these moves that might happen with at your lgs you might see more tron and you might see more humans you might see people bringing Adnaws and other decks and hardened scales, for example, could all have kind of on the uptick. Maybe is it Phoenix is going to get a little bit of a downtick. The big thing is I think that we are quickly approaching the potential end of an era of modern right now. And the reason for that is of course, that modern horizons is coming up much sooner than I think people realize it's the end of April Modern Horizons is going to launch at the end of July. And so, one thing that was super interesting was that the n- next paper Mythic Championship is going to be another modern Mythic Championship, and limited portion of it's going to be Modern Horizons. Oh, that's going to be so sick. So I, I think that this moment in time is about to be... We're about to get hit with a huge shakeup for the modern format in general from from that. I have a cold shot right now. I think the pre-release for Modern Horizons is going to be when they institute the London Mulligan. Like that cold shot. That's interesting. 
Dave, I think you're more right than you even realize because Modern Horizons comes out June 14th. Oh, it's and not even late July. Oh, geez, I thought it was. I thought it was uh, later than that because Barcelona, I believe, is Barcelona. the schedule for Barcelona is July 26th. So the Mythic Championship is at the end of July. But yeah, Modern Horizons only six weeks away. Not only that, but by the time people hear this episode, it will be May. In which case, Modern Horizons literally comes out next month. Yeah. So the window is closing on the format that we see right now. And they said that they didn't want to make a set that would shake up the format completely, but they're still making a product that is going to add a huge infusion of cards to this format. And so I think the potential for some big structural changes to the way modern works is very high. So keep that and put that in your pipe. Put that in your Urzatron and smoke it. <laughs> I don't know. We, we don't condone any smoking on the dive down. Yeah. Well, that was our extra long, extra spicy combined breakdown, dive down for the week. We are going to take a quick break, drink a glass of water, feed our cats. And when we return, we are going to do a wind down with some listener questions. Stay with us. So a couple weeks ago, we asked our very loyal listeners in the Dive Down Nation to send us questions about modern, questions for us personally, whatever you had on your mind. And we got a lot of great responses. We have two that we want to address on the wind down today. So the first one comes from a longtime fan of the show. His name is Hunting Guy on Reddit. I'm going to call him Hunter for the purposes of this wind down that may or may not be that person's name and hunting guy asked should we be bringing more tron hate than usual right now and my immediate quirky response on reddit was why would you ever leave the house without any tron hate but i guess my question to you guys kind of building on what hunter asked do you think if tron takes a bigger cut of the meta or the format that we need to devote more space in a sideboard to answers for Tron. Can I just, so I think this is a great question if you sort of abstract at one level too, which is how do you interact with the metagame where you feel like you're about to hit a tick up of a deck that you have a hard matchup with? Is the way to solve that by adding stuff to your sideboard or should you be playing a different deck or should you be making tweaks to your, your main deck that help you deal with that? that deck so i, I th we talked about this a little bit on episode uh which is called uh <laughs> uh the tweak it episode <laughs> i don't have the the full manifest in front of me there's some discussion here about that where i think that you have to sort of look at your strategies and go do i have to do, use my sideboard for this is that the best way to do this because that's not always the right way to approach hating out a deck but anyway what do you guys think about dealing with Tron right now in particular. I think that we talked about Tron as a deck that maybe if you can't easily hit it out, there are some cards that are pretty good against it. But I think that it's a trap that I've fallen into, an easy one to fall into, is when you over-sideboard or focus a lot on a matchup, you can have a lot of linear cards. So I think a positive thing about Tron hate cards is there are some that have more ubiquitous uses. A card like a Damping Sphere, for example, is really good in a meta where you think there's going to be combo. And other things like that. So I think that maybe you do need to tick up on the Tron hate, but you also need to make sure that it's coinciding with another deck that you know or feel like you're going to see. I think that's a great answer. 
the the other way that I would take this a little bit is think about the decks that you have available to you and just consider decks that have main deck plans against cards that try to abuse big mana strategies, right? So are you a person who plays a lot of, is it, is it Phoenix? Should you switch over into something different where you can, maybe you also have blue white control and you can run a deck that has a bunch of field of ruins in it? Because now apparently field, uh, according to coverage this weekend, anyway, now blue white control has a positive matchup against Tron just because of field of ruin suddenly now and not six months ago when it had the same it had the same tools available to it but at any rate that's something to think about too i think the rise in popularity of main deck surgical extraction helps because you can feel the ruin away a tron land and then it is gone forever yeah but is blue white even doing main deck surgical uh, in, the, in the in this tournament they were yes so i'm i'm saying i think that's why it did you know, as well as it did in the tournament and why it had the results it did because of things like that. And I'm not saying you have to run surgical. We talked, we had a whole episode about how maybe you shouldn't do that. But I think that there are just a lot of tools available. And if you're in a meta where you think there's going to be a ton of non-basic land shenanigans, maybe consider running a singleton. It's interesting. Also, maybe consider just playing Blue Moon with a Kiki Jiki combo finish. Yeah. The advice I want to give all the time is play Blood Moon. But I, it's I've tried to stop giving it every single time. But that is always my first word of advice: is play main deck Blood Moon. Well, Tron is has some weakness to Blood Moon, but also has a weakness to combo, right? Because you can kind of get them through, you know, through whatever worm coil engines they put down. You know, it, that doesn't stop infinite pester mites. So, <laughs> no, it sure don't. <laughs> that, that, there's a whole aspect of of that as well. So, I think that that's the one thing you got to keep in mind, especially with a deck like Tron. Is sometimes it's better for you to move to a different deck that you have in your arsenal than than not. So, I, I'm a little less inclined to significantly up the amount of hate pieces I have with me in my deck, unless my the deck is set up to already have hate for this particular deck but i do think you should have a solid game plan and understand the way that tron works so that you can you know what you should be doing and basically it's attack their lands as early as possible or their artifacts also as early as possible yeah i mean that's a good point too i should that's so attacking their lands not not the best generalization because stony silence is quite good against tron as well especially early yeah i think that a card that I would recommend bringing in, and I think Shattering Spree, if you don't have a ton of other options and we're going to cut a card, isn't so bad against Tron. You maybe only get one artifact off of it, but if you can hit him early, that might be enough to slow him down. You'd really recommend Shattering Spree over a Braid? One red mana is... Well, well, the reason I'm asking is because you talked about Damping Sphere mm-hmm. being something that's good against Tron, but good against other decks. It feels like a braid is one of those modal spells that gives you a little bit more optionality against a wider meta. That's fair. What are you hitting with it for the three damage mode? Any human in humans. Oh, see, I was I was falling into the same trap where what are you hitting with it in Tron? That's not the point. Yeah, exactly. What is humans? The point is birds. Good point, Stan. I think a braid is a better call. But I'm saying if you do happen to run Shattering Spree in your sideboard, consider bringing it in alongside a braid. Yeah, it's... It's tough because this is one of those instances, though, where you're kind of like, well, what deck are you on, right? Because a braid right. is a good card to have in your sideboard if you're on a deck where you want to kill creatures from humans and you also want to kill artifacts in Tron. But it's not the right it's not the right selection for every deck, right? So I think if if you were playing your mono red prison list, 
a braid is fine, but maybe you do want to have Shattering Spree against against Tron out of that deck because you need the massive card advantage that that offers. There's just there's so many mitigating factors here that I think it's much more about understanding the game plan your deck needs to have against Tron and if you need to bolster it. Yeah, but I think our resounding takeaway, at least to the words I more or less put into Hunter's thoughts, is be wary about devoting too much real estate in your sideboard against a specific deck. Because at least for the time being, we're not in Eldrazi winter territory where you're, you know, threatening to play against the exact same strategy over and over, round after round. Yep, totally agree with that. I also think it's not nice of you to put words into the thoughts of our fans, but... (laughs) I feel like he and I are practically friends now, so... Thank you to Hunting Guy for writing in. They are a frequent contributor to Reddit threads, DMing us, and all kinds of stuff. So we appreciate the engagement for sure. One other parting thought. We don't want to attribute this to any one particular person because a number of our listeners have asked us this, which is, if and when are we going to bring back deep deck dives to the Dive Down podcast? Are we going to do it, guys? Soon. Yes, we are going to do it. I think probably the next episode, even the plan is to to try to have a deck dive ready for that, right? Yeah, I, I think it's still, we're still discussing what it could be, but I'm almost positive we're between only a few right now. Part of our reasoning and the topics we've come up over the last month or so is there's there's been so much news in modern. There's been so much going on within the format in general that we felt talking about the format at large was a little bit more impactful to our listeners than looking at just a single deck. But there are so many decks in modern that we're excited to talk about and something I've been saying on Reddit over and over. And that's over the life of this podcast. We want to address every single deck if possible. So we know how much you like deck dives. We love deck dives, but we want to do other stuff in addition to them. Yeah, but it's time to go back, especially as this format draws to a close with Modern Horizon on the horizon. Well, that wraps up this week's show. Thank you to my two co-hosts for joining me on another great episode. We're excited to have Shane back next week. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episode as soon as it comes out. And if you use iTunes, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or pick our brain on something in Modern, tweet us at the dive down, all one word or email thedivedown at gmail.com. If you see us on Reddit, feel free to send us a message there as well. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. Until next week, get out there and be a human! I feel like this is a little bit of a freeform jazz odyssey version of but that's okay. <laughs>